would like to invite you to open up your copy of the scriptures to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue our study on the topic in the doctrine of holiness, Hebrews 12, I'm going to back up and begin with verse 2 and read down to verse 14. Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 14. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of our Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son, whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if ye be without chastening, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and oh God, we ask that you would come now, and that you would further unfold for us the importance and significance and purpose, Lord, of us pursuing, going after, maturing and advancing in the holiness that you are mentioning in verse 14. I pray, O God, that we would have open hearts and, God, that you would thereby imprint and stamp upon them the truth of what you wish to communicate to us. Send now, we pray, O Father of lights and goodness and mercy, your Spirit to instruct and to teach us. We ask all these things humbly as beggars in need, O Lord, of your help in our weakness. We ask in these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We turn once again to this portion of Scripture which deals with holiness. I purposefully talked, or I mean, I purposefully brought our attention to the hymn that we just sung because if you would have noticed in the hymn, it's really dialing in today what we're going to be talking about, and that is our cooperation with God's Spirit in pursuing what He's calling us, indeed what He's commanding us to pursue in verse 14, and that is experiential sanctification, or as we defined it last week, uh, biblical sanctification, which is the holiness talked about in verse 14. Did you notice in the verse that we just, or the hymn we just sung, where it said emphatically, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Why? Because we take it to the Lord in prayer. We're not doing this alone. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? 
Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And brothers and sisters, we're really going to park here today on this aspect of what is the source of this biblical holiness and how does it look like? Now, I've already confessed to you, I've been leaning heavenly or heavily on the works of Thomas Brooks, uh, Horatius Bonert, J.C. Ryle, to help us rightly identify the holiness that's talked about in verse 14. But the work that I found most helpful now in what is the source of the holiness and how does it look like lived out in our lives is a book, as part of my introduction, I want to recommend to you. It's called The Work of the Holy Spirit by Octavius Winslow. Uh, while the other works that I just mentioned by the authors were helpful, they mentioned some aspects of experiential sanctification, the operations of the Holy Spirit. I found Octavius Winslow um, in my wife's library uh, as being the most helpful and the most thorough. So much of what I'm going to be sharing with you today is really gleaned from the biblical truths that are contained in this book. Now, by way of recap, brothers and sisters, let us remember the journey that we've been on as we approach the fourth message on holiness. We first of all wanted to know why it was so vital and why it was so important because of the non-negotiable term that we see without which no one sees the Lord. So this is an important issue. And then we wanted to set aside the theological errors and some of the practical errors that people think holiness is. And after we did that, we properly defined what it was. It's experiential sanctification. It is a growing, it is a conforming in the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. And last week... We looked at what it can and cannot do. And one of the things that it can most definitely do or take away from you is the assurance of your interest in the gospel and the salvation that is connected to the gospel. Or you could say it in other words, especially in the context of Hebrews, which is speaking much about the better covenant. Jesus Christ being the high priest of the new covenant, writing the law upon the hearts, you know, the things of that language. What we could say is that this holiness, it adds to or it can take away of your interest in or your participation in the new covenant, that is gospel salvation. And since it can do that, it most certainly is beneficial for all of us to want to grow in that holiness. Because as we learned last week, where there's a lack of holiness, where there's a lack of sanctification, it can shock you. It can, it can erode out the foundations of the blessed assurance that God wants you to have as one of his sons and one of his daughters. And then we concluded last week with this thought that in so much as its purpose is to grant you insurance, its ultimate supreme purpose from Romans 8 and other like passages was that God predestinated every single one of us to participate in the new covenant to what? Conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Not one person has ever been elected unto salvation by the Spirit's power brought to salvation to remain stagnant in a state of unsanctified holiness. The whole entire purpose of God's electing love was to conform us, to grow us, and to bring us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Why do you remember, and this will come up again in today's message, so that we are given back what we lost in the garden, in a sense, carefully nuanced here, in a sense, that we are giving, given back the communicable attributes of the image of God which our first parents possessed, which was perfect human Love, perfect human patience, perfect human kindness, perfect human mercy. This is what Jesus' life exhibited. Amen? And we were born again into His family by the power of His Spirit. We're going to see today now His Spirit's dwelling within us. And we, with that Spirit, are to cooperate together to grow in His image, to grow in His likeness in these areas. And so, today we're going to begin to look at, as we've had that roadmap in front of us for quite a while, 
What is the origin and, the, and the, the source of this holiness? Where does it come from? How can we do it? And what does it look like? All right. And so the, to begin with, we're going to consider the source or the origin of this personal, experiential, biblical sanctification. Its source and its origin. Now you may recall that in order for us to arrive at the correct definition of what biblical holiness was in verse 14, we had to first consider its two sister cousins or its two sister doctrines, justification and adoption. You guys remember that. That's how we got to the right biblical definition. I think it was in message two. Well, the reason I did that is like many other important biblical truths, there is an order and there is a harmony with doctrine. Um, And that's true with biblical sanctification. Understanding its source and how we live it out. There's an order and there's an harmony. For instance, some, after hearing the last couple messages of what holiness can do, and after hearing God's overall purpose regarding Christian holiness, some immediately may make the application that no matter the cost, they must gird up the loins of their minds, clench their fists in sanctified determination, and mortify all remaining sins in their lives in order that they may become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That that may be their, their application. But remember, again, there's an order and there's a harmony of biblical doctrine and it includes sanctification. So the wrong thing would be to say, okay, there's a problem. I'm going to solve it. I got to go. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. What's the list? What's the rules? I got to do this. I got to do this. Well, in some sense, that's understandable. That's an understandable reaction. Because in all general areas of life, we approach problem solving kind of that way, don't we? We assess the problem or we're made aware of a problem. We clarify its remedy, what would be a good outcome. And then to achieve the change in that outcome, we exert, we come up with, we muster the strength and the energy to put forth in order to make the problem go away. But friends, approaching personal sanctification in that way can hastily skip over of a lot of important details that if they're missed, can lead very sincere Christians who are legitimately concerned about their personal sanctification down a path which in most cases only compounds the problem. Again, there's an order and there's a harmony in which God sanctifies His people. He saved you on His timetable. That's the order. He first saved you. Right? And then, and then he, that, was, that was the adoption. He elected to, to justify you, to convert you. He called, he sent forth, the Father sent forth the Spirit to come and open up your eyes to the truth. And he adopts you into his family. And now there's going to be, in the same way, in his timing, a process of sanctification in your life that has to be in order. And he's part of that order. You don't do it alone. We'll see that in a moment. So if there's this process, what is the first step in pursuing biblical sanctification? Well, I'm going to suggest to you what I got from Octavius Winslow is that he would say the first step in pursuing biblical sanctification in the order and harmony which God presents it to us is embracing the fact that all of our sanctification originates with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the first step in pursuing experiential sanctification is embracing the fact, which many of us with our lips say, yes, I know this, begins with the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This shouldn't shouldn't shock us. Because in Hebrews 9.12, the writer, he again and again and again pointed to the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. You remember this. For instance, in verse 12 of chapter 9, he said, Not by the blood of goats and calves of the old covenant sacrificial system, but by his own blood, Jesus is, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So in our pursuit to grow, in our pursuit to mature and experience biblical sanctification, let us always be mindful, like all aspects of our faith, 
it hinges upon the power of and the efficacy of, of the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen how Octavius Winslow puts it. He says, quote, The believer in Jesus may be slightly aware of how closely associated his sanctification is with the obedience and the death of Jesus. There is nothing that will be obtained in sanctification. No flesh in sanctification will be crucified. No easy besetting sin will be laid aside, save only that the believer hangs daily upon the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed. I think this is why James Haldane, he's an old particular Reformed Baptist minister, he calls the doctrine of atonement, the bloodshedding of atonement, the fortress of the gospel. Because as we begin to want to walk and to pursue personal sanctification, it all began there with Jesus making it even possible that the law would be written on your heart and you would give a rip about sanctification. You see, it's the fortress of the gospel. The gospel, the good news, that it's not just a religion, it's an inward personal reality that I love God and that He has shown me through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that He loves me. The atonement, Jesus' blood, the power and the efficacy of it is what you will and I will in the pursuit of sanctification come to again and again and again and again. Think for a moment with me on this issue of Jesus' blood and the importance of it to get right up front and embrace the fact of its significance and us wanting to pursue and begin to walk in sanctification. Remember, in that context last week, we identified that the Father's purpose in regards to our sanctification was that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. He had a purpose in our sanctification. But here, in mentioning the blood... At Calvary, we are witnessing, aren't we, Jesus, the Son's concern in that same purpose of renewing within us in the lives of His people the image of God that was lost. And in order to accomplish that purpose, which is indeed the ultimate purpose of our sanctification, to give unto us that was, which was lost, the Father elected, but Jesus, Jesus Christ is the one who died upon the cross so that you could be given and have restored unto you that image which was lost to sin and destruction. This is why we read from Jesus' own words and about His sacrifice on the cross. Such passages as this. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus said, For their sakes, their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified. I'm sanctifying myself and setting myself apart to be murdered upon a cross. Why? So that they can be sanctified. His purpose, He shares one with the Father. He wants that same purpose to be accomplished in your life and my life. Titus 2.14 Referring, inspired by the Spirit from the Apostle Paul, Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. There's the justification. But notice here it is again with his blood and his sacrifice and the purpose of our sanctification to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And then in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, his blood, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it shall be holy and without blemish. You see, beloved, there is this beautiful relationship between the death of Christ and the death of sin in us. His death is what's made it possible. His death is why he died on the cross, not only to save us, but that we may have his spirit to kill sin in us. We're only truly going to begin to appreciate this relationship when we embrace the fact, as J.C. Ryle told us last message, that Christ shed His blood on the cross not only to make it possible that we may be forgiven. 
He shed, and this is why Octavius Winslow is focusing on this, he shed his blood on the cross that also sin in us might begin to die more and more. And here we see the triune love of our blessed God. The Father elect, the Son sacrifices, and the Spirit, as we're going to see in a moment, He calls us, but also He abides with us. Now, when I talk about the Trinity that way, the Father elects, the Son sacrifices, the Spirit calls and abides, we have to resist the misunderstanding that somehow in the Godhead there's, there's, there's these three independent wills operating exclusive from one another. No, the Scripture presents that truth of their operations. But remember always, our God is in sharing in one essence, and He is operating with one divine will. And so in that way, all the Trinity is concerned about this purpose of justifying us and also sanctifying us and purifying us. This mentioning of the Trinity, this mentioning of the peculiar work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, the shedding of His blood, its instrumentality uh, to afford us the opportunity to, to see our great need of being sanctified, etc., etc. With this, I want to draw our attention to what the Scripture again and again refers to as the sanctification of the Spirit. And here we're going to focus on the person of the Spirit. Bear with me as I read to you something that really just stood out to me in this work by Octavius Winslow in his introduction. Listen closely. Where the Spirit is honored, and this is speaking in the context of personal experiential sanctification, where He is honored and adoring thoughts of His person are entertained and tender, loving views of His work are cherished, then are experienced in an enlarged degree, his quickening, enlightening, sanctifying, and comforting influences will be. On the contrary, where he is robbed of his glory, the person of the Spirit, dishonored and denied, all is darkness and desolation, presenting the darkness and the barrenness winter of the very coldness of death itself. And then he, he turns a corner here and he has a plead like the psalmist did in Psalm 80. Come, eternal and blessed Spirit, impart to our minds life, light, and unction while investigating, I love this part, thy all-important glorious work. Investigating your all-important glorious work, which is the sanctification in our lives. If the first step to pursuing biblical sanctification is embracing the fact that it originates with the power and the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ, friends, the second step, according to Octavius Winslow, is coming to grips with the work and the operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer in the process of sanctification. Winslow says, this work is in accordance with the design of the covenant of grace, that is, the work to sanctify. It's in accordance with the entire design of the covenant. Having called and quickened us, he now aims at bringing out more vividly and broadly in one's soul all the contours of the divine image that was lost. Listen to that again. The Spirit aims now at the design of the covenant of grace to bring out more vividly and more broadly within your soul the contours, the shapes of all of the divine image that was lost. That's the role of the Spirit in your life. That's His aim. That's His goal. That's what He wants to do. Now you hear its harmony with the Father and the Son's will and in the purpose of our sanctification. Paul directly refers to, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the sanctification of the Spirit. He uses this phrase, sanctification of the Spirit. Now in that context of 2 Thessalonians, what Paul is talking about there is the role of the Spirit sanctifying us to protect us from the lies and the deceits 
of the father of all lies, the devil. That's the context. But it's not only here that the New Testament refers to a work of the Spirit in our lives to help us as Christians. In many other places, the role of the Spirit in our sanctification or in our lives is emphasized largely. But let me start off by saying this about the work of sanctification in relationship to the Spirit of God. And it's important you grasp this. The work of sanctification that we're commanded to do here in verse 14, that we're called unto, it is preeminently the product and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Scripture's clear and precise on this point. God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He is the great sanctifier of our souls. That's important because just as He receives all of the glory in our salvation... Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God also receives all of the glory in our sanctification. The application of this truth is very simple. Because just as you and I thank God and we worship God for opening our dead hearts and His sovereignty to the life that we receive in the saving of the gospel so also you should be praying and you should be giving Him thanks For every time your will is conformed to the will of God. Because He receives all the glory. Why? Because you would never even have the inclination to obey God. Or to walk in His blessed will. And His revealed divine uh, 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 desire for your life. If it was not for His operation first in your life. And so just as in salvation, so in sanctification, He receives all of the glory. It is preeminently His work that this is in verse 14. Now speaking of the indwelling of the Spirit, let us recall that Peter describes us as being born again of a, what he calls an incorruptible seed. Paul teaches, doesn't he, in several places, you are not in the flesh, but in spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you, Romans 8 9. And then over in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he he gives this language again about the indwelling of the Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now Paul describes this reality of the believer and this dwelling of the Spirit of God who is ultimately the one who brings about sanctification as a great mystery. If you really stop and think about what we're saying, we're saying a fallen human supernaturally given in some way the indwelling of the very Spirit of God for the aim and the purpose to investigate and to probe and to make us more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Colossians 1.27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Paul often spoke of Christ taking up, didn't he, residence in the hearts of those who accept Him as Lord and Savior. You remember when he prayed for the believers in Ephesus. He prayed in a way that he longed for their faith to deepen so that Christ in a way would find a home in their hearts. This language of the Spirit being in us as as a being, as as a person. He said there, I pray that from His glorious unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. Then Christ will make His home in your heart as you trust in Him Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. All of this helps to reestablish for us an important biblical truth that upon conversion a sinner in a supernatural way has God's Spirit take up residence within his soul. It's a mystery, Paul says. Brother, the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. The Spirit of Christ, the Bible is teaching, dwells in you and you and you and you. All who have been effectually called and brought to the foot of Calvary 
Christ's Spirit is within you. And after this takes place, the Bible lays out the truth that in the process of time and under the tender and faithful operation of the Spirit, the Spirit will deepen its roots. It it will, in your life, begin to take deep root and if He's really indwelling you, He will begin to branch out sprouts and have branches and leaves and bring about fruit in the right season. I'm only stressing the right season part. Because as the indwelling Spirit of Christ is within us for the aim and the purpose of sanctifying us and making us more into His image, He does it in His own timing. This is why sanctification, the pursuit of sanctification, requires much, much patience. The Spirit's fruit, the sanctifying fruit, it will vary in degrees amongst God's people. You will see at times a 30-fold bringing forth the fruit in this individual's life. But at the same time, in time, space, and history, 60-fold here. But this, brother and sister, even maybe 100-fold. But let us make no mistakes. In those places, the indwelling of the Spirit is the one who has the direct operation at work in the person's life to bring forth such sanctifying fruit. The person did not do it on their own. No, no, no. The nature of their fruit can be traced back to the operation and the work of God's Spirit within them. This is the Spirit's unique role in our sanctification. And this is intended, all of this, all of this that I just talked about, is intended to help us avoid one of the greatest mistakes in pursuing sanctification, doing it in our own strength. Winslow says here, quote, No child of God can accomplish this mighty work in his own strength, being conformed more in the image of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, And rest assured, here lies the secret of all of our failures and all of our disappointments in the work, forgetting that he who would prove victorious in this warfare must learn the lesson of his own weakness and insufficiency, and after being schooled, In that truth, he must go forth then only in the strength that is in Jesus. And then he has this exclamation, Oh, when shall we learn that we are nothing? When shall we learn that we have no might? Even in our most valiant attempts when performed in our own insufficiencies. What's Winslow doing there? He's wanting to just drive home... This is a work of God's Spirit. That's whose work this is. And we come and we pray to God, Oh God, move in Your mercies and Your tender love and Your operations within my life. Uh, Strengthen Your Spirit within me. Now I don't know about you, but I have never met anyone who denies this truth of insufficiency in their own strength. The truths that, or the, the circles that I've been around, most people readily admit this. I am a Christian, and I am weak when it comes to, at times, spiritual warfare. It seems as though I can't help myself. I am utterly insufficient in the battle that I'm being called to. Brothers, that's a good place to be. Because it's here in Humility. It's here that we accept defeat. What? What are you talking about? We're more than conquerors in Christ. No, no, no. We are in Christ. But but I'm talking about the process and the battle of pursuing holiness and sanctification. We have to admit the reality of our own remaining corruptions. And it is is intended to debase us. That admission is okay. That's that's where God wants you to be in the process of sanctification. You cannot do it. You have to rely entirely on me. And friends, those who have in their lives, I speak from experience, try to do it 
without that utter childlike dependency on God, again and again, He takes you to the school that no, 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 you will not grow, you will not be sanctified that way. You, you, you have to learn that it's all of me and it has to be dependent upon me. And so it's a reality that we cannot avoid or escape this inability that we cannot do it alone. And it's in this humility that we desire answers. Amen? And not just any answers. We want the type of answers that are going to really provide us a way forward. And it's here we ask a very legitimate question. How does the Spirit break up the fountain of sin? How does the Spirit do this work to lead to the quietening of its darkness and its influence in our lives? Well, Winslow offers two questions to this of how the Spirit does this work. Now that we've lifted Him up as the preeminent supreme one who is operating within us to bring about this holiness and the sanctification that we are commanded in verse 14 to do, he says, first, the Spirit leads us to a deeper acquaintance with the existence and the power of indwelling sins within our lives. He leads us to a deeper acquaintance with the existence and the power of indwelling sin. You see, at conversion, this is good stuff, guys. When you're first converted, it would be overwhelming for you to know just how deeply you are sinful. It would be overwhelming for you to truly know how deeply entrenched and marred and infected all part of your, 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 your human existence is with sin. And so, for those of you who have been converted biblically, usually biblical conversion is going to happen to where you hear the gospel presented and it's telling you things about yourself that you, it's kind of hard to accept, you know, that you're not the greatest thing since apple pie and, you know, that you're a sinner before a thrice holy God and et cetera, et cetera, and there's a Savior who died for your sins. And you acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. And you come to Calvary and you embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But the work, how does the Spirit plow up and sanctify sin in your life? Well, He he does some initial plowing at the very beginning. Enough to make you aware of your need for the Savior. And so you come and you embrace Christ. And then you begin to walk as this little Christian on this journey. But for those of you who got some gray in your hair, you, 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 you may have you may you may have been saved for 30 years. And the Spirit will wait that long. This is why I'm going back to being patient. He may wait 30 years for his purposes to reveal to you a blind spot in your converted life of yet deep-seated sin in your life that needs to be sanctified. And so along the journey. Winslow saying the way the Spirit does this is along the... It doesn't happen all on the front end. It doesn't all happen to happen in the back end. It happens in His timing. But the point is, is during the journey, He's going to make aware to you areas of your life where sin is in places you never thought was there. You thought you were past that. You thought you were over that. You perhaps thought wrongly by looking at others and saying, they got that problem, but I don't have that problem. And listen to what Winslow says at these particular times, this investigating of the Spirit in the process of sanctification and how it breaks up the fallow ground of deep and sin, even in the converted man. He says the Spirit is about to purify the temple more thoroughly. To take a fresh possession for God in an area of your life. To expel or begin to expel every rival by slow and imperceptible degrees may have insulated itself within your heart. In a word, the Spirit is about to sanctify us. And how does He commence the work? By leading us into the chamber of imagery. By disclosing the depths of indwelling sin. Sin whose existence we had never imagined. He shows in order to have its principle being a reality within your heart. 
Now how many of us here in our life as a Christian who have been saved for some period of time were not a novice? And I'm talking five, ten years. And the Spirit shows you this ugly, deep, black hole that's in your heart still. I thought I was past that. I thought that, you know, I didn't have an issue with that. And something happens. Or an operation the Spirit brings to the surface. Could be by thought. Could be by an action of yours. He's about to begin to sanctify you to bring it to the reality. Oh no, you haven't. You got, we, we got a lot of work to do. Iniquity, he goes on to say, that we had never thought of. The Spirit reveals as lurking in secret ambushes within the heart. Oh, what darkness. Oh, what evil. Oh, what baneful principles are found to have existed within my converted soul so long. Where we thought all was light. We thought all was holiness. We st- we're, he says we start to shudder. And we shrink away aghast at this discovery. And then he speaks in second person. What? Says the alarmed soul. Does all this evil really dwell in me? A converted man? Have I carried about with me for so long these sinful desires? Have I dwelling in me the seeds of such deep and dark depravity? Wonder of wonders it is that the flood has not so long carried me away that these deep evils have not broken out to the wounding of my own peace and the dishonoring of my God and my Savior. Thus made acquainted with his own heart almost a stranger now before him, the Holy Spirit begins to awaken one's soul and begin to desire a change, a desire for holiness. This is how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. This is His role. This is His operation. And how does He do that? Most of the times He does it in the reading, as we're getting in a moment here in a few moments, the means of grace, the reading and the preaching of the Word. Just going through the Bible. And just preaching the Bible, verse by verse, word for word, the Spirit bears witness with it, and it's raised up, and it's shown like a mirror to our conscience, and we look at it in the face, and we go, yeah, that's true. And I don't like it. I don't want it. You see, the, 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 the reflection of a need of sanctification isn't meant by the Spirit of God to say, you unworthy child. Ah, you, you, you know, you defective, immature child. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to show that I'm still working in your life. I'm bringing this to the surface. I'm bringing this to your conscience. Why? Because I'm still abiding with you. I'm still indwelling you. Uh, in other words, uh, when, when there is a sense of a, a real thing in our lives brought to us through the Word of God, you're in a very peculiar place as a, confers, as a Christian on this journey if you just shrug it off. So, so we're going to be speaking about here in, in a couple of days about Esau who had you know, this great blessing. He sold it for lentils. And then we're going to be talking about you know, don't despise the grace of God, uh, this beautiful gift you have. And when and the Bible talks about things such as sexual immorality, covetousness, things of that nature. And if you just think to yourself, I don't have a problem with that. That's, that's someone else. That's not me. I got my ticket to heaven or whatever, whatever. Friend, I'm warning you. I'm warning myself. We are in a very peculiar place if that's your response. Because the spirit that dwells within the heart of a believer, the right response is, yes, that's true and amen. And, oh, Spirit of God, I need you to help me to kill and to crucify this. And friends, it's in His timing. It's in His timing. Don't get discouraged. It may take a hundred different failures before you have victory in a particular part of your life. But the fact that God's Spirit's still spurning you on, bringing you to the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, means that the fight is still on. It means that the battle is still to be won. At his appointed time, the depth of evil will be revealed and contrary to the dictates, Winslow says, of our own poor reasoning, the Holy Spirit works in ways that often we never could have imagined and he uses methods 
that we would never have selected in order to do that sanctifying work. And that's certainly true. But have you noticed that the text seems to be directed to what we do? It just reads that way. You pursue peace with all mankind. You pursue holiness. And this is the second way in which the Spirit breaks up sin and spurs us on to sanctification. First, He reveals to us only in a way that He can do, because we like to think good of ourselves. He reveals to us a deeper acquaintance with the existence and the power of sin. But then He deepens and He strengthens the divine life that we have within our souls. In every believer, there's a spiritual life. It was given to us by God. It's part of our new nature. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of God. And it's this new nature that's being appealed to in all of these New Testament exhortations to cooperate with the work and the operation of the Spirit in order to grow in sanctification. Your, north, your, your new spirit, in other words, is what brought you here today. You, your new spirit, uh, your new nature, I'm sorry, your new nature is what you compelled to be here today. Your, your new nature is what compelled you throughout the week to uh, uh, feed upon the Word of God, to listen to, to sermons, to listen to good things, uh, to read the Bible, you know, to pray, things of that nature. And it's the Spirit of God, the second way that He grows sanctification within your life is to strengthen and to revive that divine life that God has given you in your new nature. So God is not asking you as an unregenerate man to participate in pursuing holiness. No. He's saying, I've made you new. I've given you my Spirit. And now I'm calling you to cooperate with my Spirit to put off your old self, Ephesians 4, 22-24, which belongs to the former manner of life, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self. This new nature is strengthened, it's deepened by the very simple means of grace. And now we're getting into answering some of those questions. Is biblical experiential sanctification practical, or is it like this you know, sensational thing? Well, friends, it definitely can be sensational. I mean, God can, with the zap of lightning, make it very spectacular and sensational. But practically speaking, and the new nature, the Spirit of God calling you, enabling you to exercise the means of grace, the simple means of grace, praying to Him, reading His Word, growing in His Word, following and obeying His Word. This is repentance. This is growth. This is all those things. That is a very practical living out of sanctification. And this is how sanctification takes place. Living the Christian life in the new nature, pleading to the Spirit to help, uh, aid, comfort, strengthen, grow when we have disobeyed, or when we have uh, gotten uh, a notion to do something for, for someone else within the church and the covenant community, uh, this is sanctification happening in a very practical way. Oftentimes when we talk about the operation and the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, we're looking for some sort of special niche, Isaac. We're looking for some sort of special book to tell us the secret to it. And, you know, and, and, and people are making millions off of this in the Christian life. Why? Because we're just, we're tired and we're weary and we've got something that's been on our back as Christians, you know, for five, six, seven years and I keep falling down in this habitual pattern and I don't like it, etc. So we want something that's a quick fix. But I'm here to tell you the quick fix isn't the norm. It's just not the norm, guys. Sanctification, experiential sanctification, as me and a brother were talking about before church, it usually is lived out in a very practical way over a long stretch and period of time. And this is where we as God's people have to be content with His providence. Never at peace in the war. Never content with one aspect. We'll get into this next week for the non-negotiable part of it. Never content with an area that's not conformed to the image of Christ. If I am selfish, that's got to die. If I'm continually, you know, uh, having lustful thoughts, friends, that's got to die. 
But remember, the long haul is patient. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long process. And it's done through the means of grace. Here's the essence of where it, the Spirit's trying to take us. It's a very simple surrendering of our will toward God. An old Anglican bishop one time said, by the name of Robert Leanton, he said, to say from one's heart, Thy will be done, O Lord. That You remember we prayed that in our Lord's Prayer. Not my will, but your, your will. He said that constitutes the very essence of sanctification, which the Spirit, in cooperation with our new nature, is seeking to achieve in our lives. And it's, it, it looks and it, and it feels very practically how I just described it. By each choice, when we're confronted with something, and, and in so much as we're in God's Word, we're in communion with Him in prayer, we're in communion with His body, where iron sharpens iron, when something comes up in our thinking, in our choices, and when we conform that to the will of God, brothers and sisters, you are partaking, verse 10, in God's holiness. In His holiness. Think about it. Before we were Christians, our wills, were the governing principles of our souls and they were at enemy. It was the seat of opposition to God's will. It was an opposition to His governance. It was an opposition to His law. But something does happen. There is an experiential element in your conversion where you finally say, God, Your will is supreme and it is right. I have been thinking wrong about myself. I've been thinking wrong about my sin, etc., etc. And you, what? You're converted unto His holy will. You're converted unto Him being the Lord of your life. But now with this new nature... It is right to say biblically that your sonship, your, your, uh, your place in God's family, the growth of it can be measured by. The strength of it can be measured by. Your surrendering of your will to His. It's like a barometer. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It doesn't matter all in the theology that you know. The barometer for your maturity of one of His sons, where you're at in this conformity to Christ's image, which is the supreme reason why you were elected unto salvation. We're all in it right now. This is the main aim after justification is sanctification. The main measuring rod is how often when it comes to the choice, you say, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the measuring rod of where you're at on the purpose for your salvation. In heaven, there's perfect holiness. Why? Because the angels and all those have went there to be with the angels, the spirits of just men, they're enraptured with the one will of heaven, and that's God's. It's perfect. So in exact proportion that we do God's will here on earth, friends, we are living in the holiness that He wants us to be blessed by. They just think about it. See, this goes back to what we were talking about, this misunderstanding and misdefinition of holiness. Sometimes we have a category over here and we think that that's holiness and it's really not holiness. <laughs> and so it's, it's not a violation of God's moral law and it's not an indifference to God's law, meaning uh, I'm not doing what I know I ought to do according to God's law. And, and, and we think I'm not holy and we're, we're forfeiting all of this joy and all of this happiness. Why? Because I'm, not, I'm somehow walking in disobedience with God. But where there's a choice based upon God's moral law that's set before you, or there is something that the Spirit or the Word is placing upon your heart and your mind to do, and you know you ought to do it, and you don't do it, you're choosing your will over God's will. And every time you do that, you're going backwards in holiness or you're remaining stagnant and so is it practical or sensational it's very practical what does it feel like and what does it look like well I know we don't like to hear this in the modern church today but sometimes it can look pretty boring it can, it can, it can look pretty just vanilla just going through the, the means of grace if you're doing it empty and dead well probably yeah it's not going to be very effective 
But, but if, you, if, you, if you're really communing with God and you're reading your word, not because it's a task or a rule you have to do, um, and sometimes it can feel like that. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes doing family worship, sometimes doing devotionals can feel mechanical. It's okay to admit that. But at the end of the day, you're doing it because you know it's feeding you, it's strengthening you. Just in closing, this thought just popped in my head. You know, young ones in the church, especially you really, really little ones. If and when you come to the Lord and the Holy Spirit shows you the truth of yourself and you say to yourself, by the Spirit's enabling you to see this truth about yourself, that I am a sinner and I need the salvation that Pastor Doug's talking about. I need the salvation my mom and dad talk about. I need the salvation, the forgiveness of sins that the church family talks about. I need that. If you come to that place and, 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 and you say, I want to be a Christian. I do believe upon the work of Jesus Christ. He's the only way that I could ever be forgiven for all of the things that I've ever done. There's going to be afterwards, you're going to experience very quickly a series of choices that you have to, you have to make. And those series of choices are going to predicate whether or not you're going to grow strong as a Christian and run a race, or whether or not you're going to be kind of just only halfway running and, and kind of weak running. And that kind of goes throughout all of our Christian life. It really does. We're confronted with choices all the time. I was having a conversation just yet this morning about music. And guys, you know as well as me, music is a very influential tool that the world, the Bible talks about the world as a system. The Bible talks about the world working in unison with Satan. This is not Pastor Doug's soapbox. This is biblical theology. The world will use songs. It will use different things in order to trip you up and get, get you to remain stagnant and not grow in holiness and feed the wrong things within our lives that won't conform us to the image of Christ. But to bring it all to a close, brothers and sisters, the role of the Spirit in sanctifying us is real. It abides in us. And we all possess a new nature. And with patience and endurance... Wherever you're at in the spectrum of sanctification, and it truly is a spectrum, continue to endure to run the race. Never let us as a church, as long as we're under the authority of God's Word, accountable to one another, never let us say, never let us have a culture where we will not call sin, sin. This is the problem, right, with what we see in a lot of church environments. They're wanting to make special exceptions for certain lifestyles and groups of people. No, in the house of God, we have nothing to fear because we have the truth. And if sin is sin, it is sin. But we have a Savior. We have His Word. It's sufficient. We have His Spirit. And we can deal with that sin in our own lives and as a church community. Amen? And thereby we will grow. We will sanctify. And that's the ultimate aim for God our Father. That's the ultimate aim for Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And it's the ultimate aim until that glorious consummation of the Spirit's role in our lives is to help us to keep that posture of heart that yes, your word is true and that is sin. And oh God, help me. And friends, He is a just and a faithful God. We sung it in our first hymn. He will help you. And it may not happen after one, two, three, four years. Oh, but Pastor Doug, you don't know. I've cried out. I've cried out. I've cried out. I know. And it could be, as I said earlier, in the Spirit's own sometimes imperceptible way in methods that we can never in our poor reasoning fathom. It's according to God's providential plan that it's taking that long. And it's going around that roadmap in order to get there. I want it to be gone today. I know you want it to be gone today. I've wanted things to be gone in a day. But God did it in His own time. The Spirit did it in His own way. And friends, when it happens that way, it's done. It's dealt with. It's dealt with. There's things in my life, brothers and sisters, that in my very young Christian life, I, I, it was awful. <laughs> the temptations and the drawing back to go back to the bowl of lentils and despise the grace of God. As time went on, there were things that changed. 
And I would stand here and be a liar if I told you that there's still not things. After my entire, I was converted in 2001, lest I be deceived or misunderstanding how it all worked in my life. Think about what we're talking about over 20 years. And there's still areas in my life. And there's still areas I know in your life. When you're in your prayer closet with God and it's no one but Him and the investigating, all-penetrating Spirit of God that you know you still have in your life that you are not content with. You wrestle, brothers and sisters. You fight, brothers and sisters, along with me. And you say, God, help kill that in me. And I'll tell you what it produces within you. It produces within all of us a great deal of humility because we know we haven't arrived. We know we're daily dependent upon the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's exactly the sons and daughters that our Heavenly Father wants. That's ground that He can cultivate. That's ground that He can plant seeds in. That's ground when the rain comes, brothers and sisters, it will bear fruit. That's the type of people we are called to be. That's the type of people that are sanctifying. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause once again before Your majestic throne. And Lord, after considering some of these thoughts, God, we are sobered by the reality of the truths of ourselves as Your sons and daughters, that, O Heavenly Father, we know, we are conscious of areas in our lives, Lord, that still yet need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We bless you and we thank you that as we consider today the reality that God, you have given us a new nature. Lord, you have changed the, the disposition of our will, um, the posture of our hearts. You have changed that by the supernatural working of your spirit. Lord, as we have considered today that Your Spirit indeed biblically speaks of an indwelling, it is within us, guiding, leading our conscience into all areas of truth, righteousness, and holiness. God, our Father, we come before You and we first of all confess these things. We confess our remaining sins. But also we confess, God, our utter dependence upon Your Spirit to bring forth fruit in our lives in its wisdom to help navigate, to guide this journey that we all are on as Your people. I pray, O oh God, that Your Spirit would continue to do, as Octavius Winslow said, that investigating work within our hearts and within our souls I pray that the Spirit will allow none of us to ever rest or settle down with areas in our life that we know are not right because Your Word tells us. God, we confess to You our frailties, our weaknesses, and we ask You, O Spirit of God, come. Come with power. Come and remove these stains that yet remain in our lives. Because in and of ourselves, we confess our utter insufficiency. We still like to taste. We still like to explore. We still like things that are not good. They are sinful. And oh, Spirit of God, we pray that you would continue to mortify these things in our lives that You would give us a hatred and a distaste as those things rob and take away from us the blessed image of God, the very divine image that our first parents were born with. We pray and we ask, as repeatedly we've seen in Scripture, You would continue to renew within us this blessed divine image that is enabled to love, to be patient, to be merciful, to think justly and righteously. Help us to grow in the likeness and the precious image of our Savior, Jesus. And oh Jesus, how can we step away from such lofty thoughts without thanking you? Thanking you, O oh Christ, for being willing to sacrifice your life so that it would be possible for us 
to be called your sons and your daughters. That it would be possible that the most holy divine spirit actually could inhabit our souls, inhabit us. This is a great mystery. We tread carefully with this language, but yet we do not walk away from where Scripture speaks. We give ear to where it speaks. And Christ, you made it all possible. And now we look to you, O Spirit of God, to grow and to do this work in our lives. We bless you, our triune God. We thank you. We exalt your holiness and your goodness toward us as an ill-deserving people. And now we cast our souls, we cast all of our sanctification at your throne. And we ask you to come, to come and to grow us and to help us. And we pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.